What would you say is the greatest proof that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God? What would be your answer? You don't need to answer that out loud. In my opinion, I believe it's fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. And, and by that, we just, I just mean that there's, there's things that are mentioned in the Old Testament, particularly about Jesus Christ, even thousand, a thousand years or more before Jesus even came, that have been fulfilled accurately. And you might say, why fulfill prophecy? Well, only God knows the future. And this is because it's only God that has ordained the future, and only he is the one who could, who could say it a long time ago and make it come to pass. And nowhere is this validation of the Bible more true than the prophecies that were fulfilled during Christ's first coming. Of course, that was about 2,000 years ago. Although recorded centuries before his incarnation, there are, there's over 100 prophecies concerning the life and ministry of Christ that were perfectly fulfilled during his first coming. Each one documents the authenticity of Holy Scripture. And this is what makes Psalm 22 so amazing, because there's, there's just so much here that was fulfilled during Christ's first coming. It was written 1,000 years before Christ's first coming. And this psalm reads as if it was actually recorded by an eyewitness who, who could have been standing at the foot of the cross. 1,000 years before that event. So the very words spoken by Jesus Christ when he was hanging on the cross, as well as we, we get an understanding of his thoughts, some of the injuries that he endured and suffered are recorded here in Psalm 22. So in this psalm, we have the human author, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired David, and he's setting forth a graphic portrayal of crucifixion and what happened to Jesus on the cross hundreds of years even before crucifixion was uh, invented as a form of capital punishment. So with the precision of an eyewitness, David is writing some very detailed descriptions of the cross, of crucifixion, probably the most detailed description found anywhere in Scripture, of course, other than the Gospels themselves. And so that's why some have called this the fifth gospel. And there's different opinions, by the way, about whether David actually wrote this psalm to describe his own experience, or was David writing this psalm as a prophetic look, look forward to the Messiah? Well, that, if you read commentaries, you'll see that debate going on. Uh, I personally believe this psalm was written primarily with a, a, a future event in mind. And of course, I believe it was referring to Jesus Christ, particularly the, his person and work that was accomplished on the cross. 
And that interpretation, by the way, is supported by several facts that I've, I've gleaned from various places over the years. Uh, let me give you four reasons why I believe this is looking forward to the person and work of Christ. Number one, there's no recorded events in David's life that actually correspond to what we see here in Psalm 22. And number two, the psalm has specific phrases that could only be used of crucifixion, which of course wasn't even invented as a capital punishment during David's time. And then number three, unlike the other psalms, uh, this one contains no mention of the psalmist's uh, personal sin. It doesn't mention any confession of sin. And if it is referring to Jesus Christ, you would expect that, right? Because he was perfect. He doesn't need to confess his sin because he didn't have any sin to confess. And then the fourth reason is there's no call to God for vindication of wrongs suffered. Uh, So with those reasons, uh, I've concluded that the psalm is a prophetic picture of the Messiah, Jesus Christ who, of course, came and he suffered a, a grueling execution on the cross. Uh, we, we see that he was forsaken by God so that his people would know the Lord's forgiveness. So here's the theme coming from Psalm 22. I've tried to put it into one sentence for you. Here it is. Looking forward to Jesus Christ. This is kind of a future look. Here's the theme. That Jesus Christ will be forsaken by God the Father, put to death by evil men, yet remain fully confident in God's faithfulness so that he would declare his victory. Like many of the psalms, it ends with victory on a, on a high note. And so that's, that's where the psalm is going. Starts, on, starts way down at the bottom, but it ends on a high note. So I've done things a little differently today to kind of hopefully... Uh, mix things up a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm basically giving you my outline in outline form. If you don't like things this way, I would like to hear your input. But uh, uh, if you're like me, I, a little variety is a spice of life. Um, some people don't like outlines. It's confusing to you. So if it is, I would appreciate your thoughts on that. But anyway, we, we see that Psalm 22 starts here with Christ's separation from God. And by that, and by God, I mean God the Father. In verse one, we see Jesus was was literally forsaken by God. Look at these words that Jesus Himself said on the cross. He says in Psalm twenty-two, verse one, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning?" The psalm begins with a rhetorical question that was meant to show the rejection suffered by Jesus Christ. These, of course, if you're familiar with the Gospels, were the exact words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. And and it came during that that three hours of darkness. So this, this feeling of abandonment that Jesus felt went even further here in the next phrase 
when he says at the end of verse 1, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And so we have to ask the question, why did Jesus feel abandoned by God the Father? Well, the answer is because he was abandoned. He was forsaken, literally forsaken by God the Father. And the reason is because God the Father was pouring out his wrath on the sin bearer. Jesus became the propitiation, First John talks about it, propitiation for our sin. It just means he was a wrath absorber. He had to absorb the wrath. Somebody had to do it. Jesus volunteered for the job. Somebody had to do it. And he's the only one who could. Because he's the only one who has two natures. He has the divine God nature and the human nature combined together in one person forever. He had to be perfect. But he also had to be human. Jesus was a human being. He had flesh and blood just like you do. So because of these two natures combined in one person, he was able to absorb God's wrath. He was the perfect Lamb of God. So God poured out his wrath on this sin bearer. Because God is holy, he could no longer be in, in, in this perfect communion and fellowship with his son like he had been for all eternity past. So that's why you have Jesus here hanging on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 2 we see there is silence from God. The Bible says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You get an idea of what Jesus is thinking. Why is there this silence from God? Well, no answer came from God because of the holiness of God. God's holiness forbade him from intervening in his son's death. He couldn't stop the process of atonement. This silence is shocking. You say, well, why is it shocking? Why should it be shocking? Well, for all eternity past, Jesus had never known separation from the Holy Spirit and God the Father. The three persons of the Godhead had, had been together for all eternity in perfect communion and fellowship. It was the first time, the only time, there was a, a division in the Godhead at all. So there was silence from God. Jesus was forsaken by God. But as the psalm goes on, you also see that Christ is trusting in God. And you say, well, what specifically about God is he trusting in? And, well, look at verse 3. We see that Jesus, the man, is trusting in God's sovereignty, his, his rule, if you will, over all of his creation. Look at verse 3, because he says, Yet, this is Jesus speaking, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises 
of Israel. God is reigning on his throne, reigns supreme over all of his creation. Jesus knew that. Jesus the man knew that. And that caused him to trust. By the way, it should cause us to trust as well. Knowing that God is still on his throne. He hasn't abdicated his throne and his rule and his dominion over all of his creation should cause us to trust in him. But there's another thing Jesus talks about here. because he's, We see that Christ trusted in God's salvation. Trusted in God's salvation. Look at verse 4. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. By the way, did you notice how often it uses the word trust? Or trusted? Three times in these verses, the verb for trust is used as a synonym for faith in God. Now, where is the trust coming from? Well, Jesus realized the past faithfulness of God. God's always been faithful to deliver his people. At least those who put their trust in him. Jesus knew that, and so Christ was now encouraged to persevere on the cross. Jesus, the man, was encouraged to persevere on the cross as he meditated on the character of God. He knew who God was, and that kept him going. And so if the nation of Israel cried to the Lord and were saved, as, they, as we saw in the Old Testament, how much more would the Son of Man, the Son of God, so Christ trusted in God's sovereignty. He trusted in God's salvation. But that doesn't mean as, as someone trusts in God that you're necessarily going to be delivered from all bad things and suffering. And so we see in verses 6 through 8 that Christ was scorned by people. Christ was scorned by the people. Uh, specifically in verse 6 we see he was rejected by the people. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. The treatment that Jesus received on the cross was inhumane. It was horrible. Uh, if you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll, you'll see there, you hear there that he was beaten so severely that even, even Jesus' own mother may not have recognized him. The scorn of man was shown in the cruel treatment that Jesus suffered. The gospel accounts say that he was spit upon. They punched him in the face. They spoke blasphemous words. They flogged him with the cat of nine tails. And they beat Jesus. That's just the things that are accounted for. But Jesus was also ridiculed by the people. Look what verse 7 says. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. 
And here's what they were saying. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. (coughs) Jesus was ridiculed. The, The crowd's reaction to Jesus demonstrated their hatred. Darkness hates the light. And so the psalmist foresaw here that as Jesus hung on the cross, many would hurl blasphemous insults as they were shaking their heads. And you say, well, what does that mean? Because we don't use that kind of language necessarily today. But shaking of heads, by the way, just refers to a mocking gesture. Uh, It would be jeering. It's... It could have been uh, the modern equivalent of sticking out your tongue at somebody. <laughs> so they, they were doing the sort of things that we don't like people doing to us. This mocking. And that's what they were doing to Jesus. As if it wasn't bad enough that he's hanging on a cross. But in the midst of this, we still see Jesus, the man, the God-man, submitted to the Father's will. Christ was submitted to God. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. We'll stop there for a moment. So contrary to the accusations of the mockers, Jesus knew that God brought him out of the womb. That's referring to Jesus' virgin birth. So Jesus understood where he had come from and who he was. He understood God had made him to trust as a child. See, Luke chapter 2 states that Jesus, the man, still had to grow just as all human beings grow. And that includes your your mind, your understanding as a man. In in these verses, Jesus remembers God's faithfulness to him at birth and, and all throughout his life. And this is exactly what he needed as he's going through this incredible suffering for us. Because as he suffered, he was sustained by meditating on how God had sustained him. And by the way, there's an important lesson, a life lesson for us to be learned as as we look at Jesus. Here's a, a lesson that I'm learning. Meditate on God's past faithfulness to sustain you in the present. Let me repeat that, because that's an important lesson. Meditate on God's past faithfulness to sustain you in the present. See, you've heard from that DVD series, Quieting a Noisy Soul. Well, those of you who have gone through it anyway, those of you who have gone through that, you understand that what happens is we develop noisy souls by meditating on the wrong content. See, if Jesus, the man, had started to focus on his circumstances or, you know, all the ridicule and all the other stuff that was happening to him, he could have developed a noisy soul. 
But he didn't because he's meditating on God's past faithfulness. He sees a faithful God who's always been faithful and he's trusting in this faithful God to continue to be faithful. And that encouraged him and sustained him. But verses 11 through 18 show us that Christ endured suffering. Incredible suffering. And he understood that the suffering was coming from his father. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Now that's, that's an allusion to Jesus' disciples. His friends had forsaken him. <laughs> so we, we know as we read the gospel accounts that after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the disciples ran. They fled. They left Jesus alone. And even, even Peter, who was, who was afar off at one point, forsook Jesus, denied Jesus, as Jesus told him it would happen. That must have hurt, because the Bible talks about it. It's never nice when our friends forsake us. And that's what happened to Jesus. So he's, he's all alone. But we also see in verses 12 and 13, his very life is surrounded. But look at the imagery here in verse 12, because it says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, he's not talking literally here. This is figuratively speaking. Jesus is surrounded by a pack of wild wolves, ravenous animals. And there's various metaphors that are mentioned here in the Scripture, all used to compare these, these people who are against Jesus. And, and, and they're being compared to wild beasts who want to destroy we have strong bulls, we have roaring lions, and as we read on, we're going to see dogs mentioned, and then even oxen. All things that can be very destructive. And so the reality is, is that when people reject God, they act like animals. That's exactly what we see it happening all over the news. <laughs> even today, this is nothing new. It happened in Jesus' time, and it's, it happens every year since then. So when people reject God, they act like animals. That's reality. So Jesus' life was surrounded, and then in verse 14, we see his bones were disjointed. Verse 14 says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. That's probably a reference to uh, after Jesus was nailed to the cross, which they would have usually done, by the way, on the ground, because the crosses would be up in the air, so they would, they would lay this person to be executed on the cross as the cross was on the ground. Those spikes would have been driven through Jesus' wrist and through his feet. And then they would have a hole in the ground, and so the soldiers would have lifted the cross up 
and it would have been dropped into this hole so, it, so he, he would be hanging up in the air. And as he'd be dropped in the hole, his, probably his, his, his shoulder joints, maybe even some of his other joints would have come, come out. And if you've ever had something like a shoulder come out of its joints, you would know from personal experience it's incredibly painful. So at this point you say, ouch, <laughs> ouch. So, so Jesus is describing his sufferings that he's going through here for us. Probably as he's hanging on the cross and he's, he's developing cramps and, and various things that would be happening to him, you could probably see other parts of his body being, um, becoming disjointed as well. And then number four, his heart melted, it says. The end of verse 14 says, My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. The idea here is that, that the Lord's strength upon the cross was fading. Just as you would, you would view a, a candle burning, slowly the wax on the candle would, would drip. It melts. That's the idea here. Slowly, Jesus' strength is fading away. And then number five, his verse 15 says his strength was gone. At, at some point, he, he just had nothing less. Look at verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is talking about what God the Father is doing to his Son here. So Jesus is, is on the cross. He's hot. He's thirsty. And, and when you read the Gospel accounts, one of the things that Jesus said on the cross is, I thirst. I thirst. You know, the Holy Land is a hot place. <laughs> hot, dry place a lot of the, the year. He, we know he was in Jerusalem at the time. And he had been up all night. He probably didn't have anything to drink for may, maybe over 24 hours. Now he's out in the sun. He's been being baked by the sun as he's hanging on the cross. He's thirsty. He's hot. And that just saps the energy out of you, doesn't it? You, we've had some hot days recently. If you have to work out in the sun, you, you know the longer you're working out in the sun, you, it just makes you tired, just sucking the energy out of you. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. In verse 16, we see his body was pierced. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. By the way, as far as we know, that never happened to David. So this is one of those reasons why we, many, many conservative Bible scholars think this is a prophetic looking forward to the Messiah. His body was pierced. We, we know that for many reasons. Jesus even showed his disciples the very wounds. And by the way, Revelation, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ tells us Jesus still has those scars. And he will have those scars for all eternity to remind us every time 
we see King Jesus. And we talk to him. And he talks to us. There's visual reminders of his finished work that he did on the cross. Verse 17 says his bones were exposed. His bones were exposed. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. So he, in other words, the idea is he could feel the pain. He could feel the pain of each one of his bones, what was going on in his body. He was aware that people were staring at him and gloating over him. So there's this idea of, of a physical pain, but there's also the, the emotional pain going on here. It's the, the shame and the indignity that Christ felt because of his nakedness before this crowd of people who were, who were staring and gloating and ridiculing him. This is in a day and age where, for the most part, people kept their bodies covered, except for the prostitutes. They would be the only ones that would expose parts of their body. And so you'd notice a prostitute because Proverbs says she dresses like a prostitute. So Jesus would have been one who would have, who would have covered his body. It was a shame to have your skin exposed. It was a private thing. It was only reserved for your spouse. So Jesus is hanging naked. He's exposed. And he feels the shame and the indignity. And verse 18 says his clothes were divided. They, the, the soldiers at the foot of the cross, divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. In other words, they're kind of, it's like they were kind of gambling over Jesus' clothes. They're trying to decide, well, this guy doesn't own much. <laughs> Who's going to get what he has? That's typically what the executioners did. Because the guy in the cross was going to die. And so it was kind of like their little bit of recompense. It's, it's kind of the, the perks of the trade, so to speak, if you're an executioner. The, guy, the poor guy on the cross would see you know, his few worldly belongings would then go to the executioner. And so these soldiers gambled to decide, well, who's getting Jesus' clothes? He, he doesn't need them. So these are some of the, the things that Christ suffered. And we see, see all of these things coming true in the New Testament. But in the midst of this, we see that that Christ is still trusting God because he, now, now he's going to pray to God the Father. He's going to pray to God the Father in verse 19. What does he pray for? Well, he prays for strength. Verse 19, he prays for strength. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. It's a good prayer. Prayers don't have to be long, elaborate, <laughs> just sincere, praying to God the Father. And the silent prayer that was offered by Christ as he's hanging on the cross begins with a plea to the Father to not be far off. Don't be far. Don't be distant from me. I, I, he, he's recognizing his need for God. If God needs God, 
wow, what does that say about us? So for Jesus, this dreadful distance from the Father was unbearable. It's unbearable. So he's praying for strength. But Jesus also prayed for God to save him. Not in a spiritual sense. He he didn't he because Jesus wasn't a sinner, but look what Jesus says in verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So he's he's praying to God the Father, and he's saying, save me. So like the goring of the horns of a wild ox, those nails pierce Christ's hands and feet. Remember, he is a man. He's feeling this. But yet, verse 21 ends on a note of triumph. See, those the, the words in our Bible translated save me literally means God, you have heard me. You have heard me. Jesus knew that God had heard him. Therefore, the section ends on an optimistic note. And then it begins an important turning point in the mood of the psalm. We've, we've had some bad news here, haven't we? But this is kind of like a door on a hinge, if you will, a turning point in the psalm. So as Christ died on the cross, he anticipated the Father's deliverance. He knew that that wasn't the end. It was just the beginning of, of good things to come. And he, he believed that his cry had been heard. He believed it with all of his heart. And so the, the, the psalm from here on is, is, is really all about Christ's salvation for God. Jesus knew why he had come and, and what he had accomplished. So let's look at Christ's salvation for God in his it's going to be broken up into three sections. We see that, that salvation was proclaimed, first of all, to the Jews. Salvation was proclaimed, first of all, to the Jews. That's what this psalm says. We, we, we see that elsewhere in Scripture as well. But look at verse 22. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus is talking about his brethren, his 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 countrymen, Israel. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. There's a major shift at this point going from a plea for deliverance to an affirmation of praise to God for his faithfulness. And so these verses imply a future resurrection of Christ in which he would announce his triumph over sin, death, and Satan. And by the way, there's, there's a, another reference to Hebrews 2 verse 12 which is is clear that Christ is the one speaking. Of course, Hebrews 2 is talking about Christ. It's all about Christ in Hebrews. Which says this, I, 
Uh, Hebrews 2 says, I tell of your name to my brothers. There's a lot of quotations from the Old Testament you see in Hebrews. Here's yet another one, which shows that this is Jesus speaking. Verse 22 is quoted as referring to Christ. And so it tells us that Jesus is the speaker. And he's going to continue to be the speaker through the rest of this psalm. So it's important to, to note that, otherwise you could get a little confused. You might wonder, well, who are these pronouns referring to? So just keep in mind, Jesus is the one speaking. And so the phrase you'll see there, in the congregation I will praise you, is then a prophecy concerning Jesus' appearance. You remember after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. They were locked in the upper room. He came to his disciples and appeared to them in bodily form. We, we also know scripture states later on he, he appeared to 500 people at once, made himself visibly appear before them, and, and then, of course, ultimately, we know Jesus is going to appear to those in heaven. And all believers will live and reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And in verse 23, the phrase offspring of Jacob is a reference to Jewish converts after Jesus' resurrection. Certainly the gospel was proclaimed to the Jews first. We, we know the first Christian church was in Jerusalem itself. It was planted right there in Jerusalem, Israel. And so before any other nation, Israel was the one that was chosen by God to glorify God. At this point, Jesus pleaded for his people here, as the Bible says, to stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. So Christ wanted the people to know that. Although he was despised by them, God hadn't despised Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus there when it says that God had not despised or abhorred the afflicted. The afflicted is Jesus. So in fact, while the people of Israel had despised and abhorred Jesus, God the Father hadn't. God had approved Jesus' sacrifice for sin. We know that because Jesus was resurrected from the grave. It showed that God the Father approved of the atonement. So in view of God's listening ear here, the, the psalmist states this, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. Well, what's the point? Well, not only was God the object of praise, he's also the source of praise. And that goes for you and me too, by the way. So God's the object of praise and the source of our praise. Verse 25 talks about vows. What are these vows? Well, they were probably thank offerings that, were, that, that um, your typical Israelite would do. And, and, of course, Jesus, being Israelite, was probably offering these during his time of trouble here. So in such, case, in such cases, the flesh of the sacrifice was to be eaten. And this explains the imagery you see in your Bible here. There's this imagery of a banquet or a feast at which the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
That's what Psalm 22 says. They will eat and be satisfied. So because of the great sacrifice offered by Christ, many people entered into his presence. And, And that's why it says, so that those who seek him shall praise the Lord. My friends, the only, the only way you and I can enter into God's presence and praise him is because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The only way. By the way, included in the Abrahamic covenant, read Genesis 12, it, it, it shows us that God's grace is evident to all peoples of the earth. So included in the Abrahamic covenant was God's grace to bless people from all the nations, not just the Jews, not just Israel. And so for God, he declared in eternity past that the families here, as it says, families of the nations shall worship before you. This submission resulted from the truth we find in verse 28. Look at verse 28. We see this submission for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So salvation was proclaimed to Jesus' people, Israel. But praise God, it didn't stop there because in verses 30 and 31, we see that salvation's proclaimed to all peoples of the earth. <laughs> of course, that includes us. Look at verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Praise God. Praise God. God has done the work which we could have never done. Jesus did it for us. By the word, you'll see that word posterity. That's not a word we use a lot, is it? Posterity just refers to future generations. And it says there are even future generations yet unborn. They would serve God by, notice, proclaiming his righteousness. And so this proclamation of the gospel hinges on this truth. We see that the psalm ends. What does it hinge on? The gospel hinges on this truth that God has done it. God's accomplished this good news for us. And this is just another way of stating that Christ has finished it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? After all, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did he say? He said, it is finished. What did he mean by that? Jesus says, it is finished. And what did he mean? Why why did he even say that? Well, it's because he finished this mission. He met the righteous demands of a holy God. And so because... Righteous demands of God were fully met by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew this, and and he could wholeheartedly say, it is finished. And as a result, the righteousness of God will be applied 
to any believer's account. So my friend, when you put your faith in Jesus alone, Jesus bears your sin and all the sufferings that go with that sin, and then God the Father imputes his son's righteousness to your account. So your, your spiritual bank account, if you will, it isn't just empty. It's not empty, but it's full. So this huge debt that you owed is, is taken away, and in its place you have, you have something that's really unimaginable. Christ righteousness in its place. Paid in full. And so, as we kind of wrap this up, I've kind of changed the theme that I had in a future tense at the beginning to more now of a past tense. Because this is what Jesus has done. Look what he's done, according to Psalm 22. Jesus Christ was forsaken by the Father, put to death by evil men, yet remained fully confident in God's faithfulness, so was able to declare his victory. Able to declare his victory. And that's why he ends this beautiful psalm by saying, he has done it. He has done it. And he did it all. So let me just give you two points of application to think about, meditate upon, take away with you today. Number one, make the cross of Christ central in your whole life. In your whole life. Not just when you partake of the Lord's Supper, but your whole life. Apostle Paul in Galatians talks about boasting only in the cross of Christ. See, the cross should be central in the believer's daily walk with the Lord. Any believer in Jesus Christ must be there. See, the Christians to live as Jesus died. Jesus died selflessly, sacrificially, and with great abandonment to the will of God. That's how a believer should live. So as the Lord Jesus remained faithful to the end, so you and I must endure in the work that God has committed to us. Let me ask you, as Jesus said in the Gospels, have you died? Have you done that? Have you taken up your cross? And are you following Jesus? Make the cross of Christ central in your whole life. And that, that's a daily thing, by the way. The Bible talks about Paul. Paul did that. He said, I die daily. This, this is something that, that was just constantly with him on his mind, on his heart. And that's why others who've gone before me have often said, you, you need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the cross of, of Jesus Christ to yourself daily. Always keep that in your mind, in your heart. Meditate upon this truth. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. Whatever it is that you would, even eating and drinking, or whatever you do, that you would do it all to the glory of God. And number two, 
by way of application, let the cross be central in your witness for Christ. See, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the good news. When you read Paul's kind of summary statement of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he says, this is of first importance. The gospel's of first importance. And, and he, state, he says that Christ died for our sins. That's all part of that cross work. So the cross shows us some important things that we need to know. It shows us the substitutionary death of God's Son for sins. It shows us what we deserve. We deserve to die on the cross. But praise God, Jesus took your place. So you didn't have to do that. So the cross shows us the substitutionary death of God's Son for sins. And this is what believers should be proclaiming to the world. Sadly, Sadly, that's often not the case. But we should be doing what the Apostle Paul states in Scripture. The Apostle Paul preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul stated that was a message that was not acceptable. It wasn't a a feel-good message. (laughs) Paul said, I'm not going to just preach to people's felt needs. In the long run, that doesn't help, but that's what often happens in pulpits around the world today. I'm just going to help people with their felt needs. People need to know about God's love for them. and that you're, you're a special person. God couldn't live without you. you know, the, these are the sort of feel-good messages. That's just one of many that, that are often preached, but Apostle Paul says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to preach Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross, is like a cr- common criminal, and him crucified. But yet he rose again. And so believers must declare the dying Lamb of God to a dying world. You say, why? This, this message is not popular. There's going to be people who hate me, who might even kill me for preaching that kind of a message. So why? It's because Jesus is the only hope of eternal life for sinners. It's their only hope. Their only hope. See, you, you can't be saved until you recognize you're lost. If you don't recognize that you, you need a Savior, you're never going to reach out to the only hope there is, the Savior. That's why it has to be done that way. That's the way God designed it. So, My friend, make the cross of Christ central in your evangelism, in your, in your witness. Don't leave it out. People need to understand they're sinners so that they know they need a Savior. And they need to understand the Savior not only died, but he arose again. My friends, that's the message that we must proclaim. May God help us to be faithful in accurately declaring this message. Let's pray.